Hey friends, I'm Alameen Abdul-Mahmoud. I'm the host of the new podcast, Commotion. If you don't know about us yet, well, we are your daily deep dive into the biggest stories coming out of the world of pop culture, art, and entertainment. And luckily, I'm not going to be doing it alone, okay? I'll be joined by some brilliant culture writers and thoughtful super fans. We're going to have hilarious hot takes. We're going to have vibrant debates. Consider this your invitation to join the group chat. Get in here and join us. Commotion, available weekdays on CBC Listen. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. Well, the difference between global and international is that many, many languages are international. And what international means is the language that is used across more than one country. So you think about Arabic or think of French even or even German. There's a lot of, a lot of languages that are spoken in more than one country, and that makes them international. In 400 years, English went from being a small language spoken in the British Isles to becoming the most dominant language in the world. It's not merely an international language. It's global. English is a global language. It is, is, you know, it's a good term to use precisely because it, it means something different than international. But we shouldn't think that, Eng- that English is spoken by the majority of people in the world. English is still, paradoxically, a minority language, if that makes any sense, meaning that most people in the world don't speak English. Global just means it is found and used far more widely than any other language. Okay, so you guys went, and how far? So two and a half hours. It's two, two and a half hours now. English is present all over the world as an enduring legacy of colonialism. But it's also a global language of commerce and culture, overtaking local languages and pushing them aside. They were like Janakpuri, Rampuri, something like that. I'm like, what, what is it? So many different puris. Some think of English as a gift. Others call it a bully, a loudmouth, a thief. But some argue there's a need to rethink English and see it as a language with multiple versions standing on equal footing. Yeah, so my name is Mario Saraceni. I'm a reader in English language and linguistics at the University of Portsmouth in the UK. Um, And can you just tell me the term reader, which is not a common term that we use here? Ideas producer Nahid Mustafa asks the question, English, friend or frenemy? Yeah, reader actually is the same as associate professor. It's equivalent to that. In fact, we are in the process of changing reader to that exactly for the reason that you've mentioned, because people around the world are not necessarily familiar with the term. So it means associate professor. I suppose that that uh, sort of widespread aspect of English, uh, I don't know if widespreadedness is a word, but the widespread aspect <laughs> of English, um, yeah. you know, brings about that question whether English is a gift or whether English is a monster. Does it have to be either of those things? Well, yes, that's a really good question. I mean, a lot of people feel um, very negative about the presence of English in this global context. And they tend to think of it as a monster, as a language that kills other languages and kills other cultures and kind of colonizes it, you know, as a continuation of of imperialism and so on and so forth. 
Other people see it as a gift, you know, as something that um, gives opportunities, that enhances careers, uh, makes communication, international communication easier, um, and so on. And so, I mean, the, the, the fact is that both these aspects are true, and, but they're not mutually exclusive um, in the sense that, you know, when we're talking about a global language, in fact, when we talk about language in general, we're talking about something extremely complex. So we'll we'll get into some of those complexities in a bit, but uh, I want to sort of clarify a couple of terms before we before we go on further. Yeah. Is the term English speaking world at all a useful term? I don't like it particularly um, because um, it suggests that whatever we refer to when we say world. You, you know, you could say English-speaking country or English-speaking world or English-speaking region or whatever. But what that tends to mean is that that world or that part of the world speaks English. And and that's it's simply not true because English, in the vast majority of cases, English exists and is used in conjunction and alongside other languages. So a lot of people in the world... Pro- Probably the majority of people in the world are multilingual, so they speak more than one language. Very often they speak three, four languages, and English is one of them. And sometimes English, English, in fact, very often English is not, it does not feature at all. Uh, so when we say English-speaking world or English-speaking anything, uh, it, it's it's misleading because it it kind of erases the presence and the importance of other languages that coexist with English. Another term, uh, dialect. Um, you and I had a conversation about this before we did this interview, um, and and you had a, a very um, a sort of a, I mean, I'd, I I thought of it as a, a kind of a pithy description of what a dialect is. Mm. Yeah, I mean, th- f- first of all, the word dialect um, is slightly problematic because dialect tends to come with negative connotations. When people think of a dialect, they tend to think of some sort of substandard form of a language. So when somebody says this is a dialect of uh, English or a dialect of German or a dialect of any other language, the assumption is that the you know it, it, it it's a non-standard ver- version of that language. Um, it, whereas in um, you know in sociolinguistics, so which is my area, my academic area, we 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 consider dialects as varieties. It just this is a form of a language, this is another form of a language, and this is another one, and and so differences aren't good or bad; they're just differences. And so we tend to prefer the the, the term variety rather than dialect to avoid the negative connotation. But the other interesting thing about dialect is that. A question that often, you know, we don't think of is um, what really is the difference between a language and a dialect? You know, who decides whether one form of a language is a dialect and another form of a language is the language, so to speak? Um, And so and that ultimately is a matter of power and and, you know, a group of people that holds more power in a society or the community of people that holds more power in the society, their language or their version of the language is likely to be the standard and therefore the language, whereas um, everything else will be considered a dialect. Um, and so it's very political and is very much related to power. 
And I mean, I can go on about this <laughs> for quite a bit, but uh, just interesting examples of that, for example, is um, if you consider languages like um, Serbian and Cro Croatian in former, former Yugoslavia, they're considered two different languages. When Yugoslavia was a country, that language was called Serbo-Croat. And in effect, I mean, so the question is, are they two different languages or, you know, or not? Are they mutually uh, um, intelligible? They're written in different scripts. Um, and and it's, it's linguistically speaking, it's, it's virtually impossible to resolve that question. The question is entirely political meaning that when Yugoslavia was a country, it was one language. Now that it's split into different countries, these are separate languages. But it has very little to do or nothing to do with, with linguistic features and everything to do with, with politics and power. And so how easy is that to, to say? Um, I mean, nobody wants to hear that the language of their political opponents or the language of their... Uh, even in some cases, the language of their enemy is the same as their own language. Do you do you find that there's a there's a there's a sort of a rift in how we talk about this, just popularly versus how it's spoken about academically? Yeah, I, I think I think so. Yes, but the thing is that academia, what academia does or should do, is observe the world essentially and understand it and make sense of it. And so these things that we're talking about here, it's not that the lay person has a distorted view of language, etc. The lay person has a view of language and academia understands it, tries to understand it. So for example, you you, you know you could have two uh, communities, two societies speaking very, very similar languages from a purely linguistic point of view. But there might be one or two you know, fairly insignificant differences. But those differences are symbolically extremely important because they actually mark differences and, and, and allow this community to say, we speak this language, and the other community to say, we speak this other language. Uh, this is particularly useful in inverted commas when the two languages are, or the two versions of the same language, whatever we want to call them, are written in, in different scripts because the script allows you to say, look, this is a different language. And so, um, and those views about language are extremely important, you know, um, and ultimately it's what counts because linguists could say whatever they want to say, but what counts is what real people, it's not that we're not real people, you know, what <laughs> we, you know lay, lay, lay people, um, their views of language and what language matters or how it matters to them and what it, means it's extremely important so sometimes you have the again you know you have one the pronunciation of a word that may be different across a border and that's enough to say we speak this and then and, and you speak that you know this is what happens for example across the border between thailand and laos you know the the the, the, the language spoken in on either side of the border is virtually the same but it takes a tiny difference to allow the two nations to say this is this is Lao and this and the other on the other side this is Thai, and this is perfectly normal and happens everywhere in the world. Is there an example of where the opposite has happened, where two languages historically considered different languages by the people that speak them suddenly become mm. a single language? Well, 
I think that what comes to my mind is Arabic, because Arabic is interesting, because Arabic, you see, Arabic is very, very interesting, because you have a language that is formally spoken in in a lot of countries in North Africa and the Middle East, right? In actual fact, a lot of people, you know, sort of on the ground, in the streets, at home, etc., speak their own very local variety, uh, which sometimes is, you know, it, it's hardly intelligible to somebody from another country. But I think what matters is the sense of um, broader community and identity that Arabic as in, ter- in, in terms of modern standard Arabic, allows these societies to have. So, you know, what, what you have is languages that are used on a daily basis, and they may be, you know, Derija in Algeria or Morocco and, you know, other local varieties of Arabic. And then you have this kind of super common language, which is modern standard Arabic, which has a strong identity stroke religion um, function that um, puts everybody together in, in, in ways which are pretty much the opposite of what I was talking about five minutes ago. So I think this is this I think this answers your question, doesn't it? Uh, this is an example of, of of yeah the opposite of that kind of thing where one little difference marks a whole you know distinctiveness between two languages. This is this is the other way around. Oh, Zian Expansi! Mm-hmm. You like this? Wow! only cooks the tinola. Tinola mongo. I think with English, what you get is that the, the different varieties of English that exist around the world are different and they sound different and they look different in a way. You know, the vocabulary, the words differ to some extent. Uh, accents are the are the most obviously different uh, aspects of of, of the, you know different versions of English. Well, it's Lucas' favorite. Yeah, it's Lucas' favorite. Fried egg. <laughs> but I think that those differences, and on the whole, they're not as marked as they would be. That they would you know make mutual intelligibility a problem. If you imagine, imagine all varieties of English on a Venn diagram, if that makes any sense. If you can visualize that, every, every variety of English is a circle. So you have American English, you have Nigerian English, British English, Canadian English, and so on and so forth, right? Indian English. And each one of them is a circle. If you if you represent this thing diagrammatically, what you would get is all these circles overlapping by ninety percent. So there's there's a middle part that is the same, right? And that is your super English. And then the bits that stick out that they don't overlap. These are the dis- distinctive features of all these varieties of English. But those distinctive features are not you know substantial enough. To um, to impede intelligibility. So so you know with modern standard Arabic you have you have an actual formal you know version of the language. With English you don't quite have that. You know with English you know you have standard British English. You, you have standard American English. You have dictionaries and grammar books that sort of 
you know, codify these varieties of English, but there isn't one kind of master <laughs> standard English that is that, that exists on a, in a dictionary or in a grammar book or anything like that. And and so it's more to do with the actual use of the language and and which can be, as I say, represented diagrammatically in this kind of mega Venn diagram. I don't know if that makes sense. It does make sense. But the the question that I have is about that 90% overlap, the the sort of the fight about that 90%, because if that Mm. 90% is codified and that 90% is a standard English, um, then the the question then about power and uh, and who gets to decide and and who is yeah. kind of held to be the originator, those questions then linger and persist. No. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Yeah. No. I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, when people when people think of standard English uh, around the world, they tend to think of one or two varieties. You know, and and these are British English uh, and sometimes American English. And so these two varieties are the most powerful ones, um, historically, for very clear historical reasons. Um, and, and so they tend to determine a lot of that 90%. So that, that's true. Um, and that is, uh, that's just a fact, you know. Um, and I don't think that there is something that we can... Uh, argue very much against um it's it's just the way it is it, it it's it, it's true that the, the 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 oldest and most powerful varieties of the language and the, the you know the very reason why the language has spread around the world so much um has to do with power once again their empire and so so the logical consequence of that is that uh, yeah, that famous ninety percent is not equally shared. Um, that's the way it is. Yeah, it's true. In a lot of places, um, you know, there's there's an effort which is connected to politics and and mm. cultural protectionism in some sense, where there's a real effort to keep English at bay, uh, keep yeah. English from quote unquote polluting local languages. Um, yeah. And so everything gets translated into a local language, even words like computer or yeah. or phone. Um, as, a, as a person who studies language and, and sort of the interplay of languages, how do you think about this effort when you when you when you see this sort of drive yeah. to keep language so-called free or or original yeah. or authentic? Yeah. It's I mean I, I can see the motive behind it and I can understand why in some places these efforts um, are in place. But these efforts aren't, aren't successful uh, because what they try to do, they try and legislate against um, particular language use. And that's just not, that's just, it's not possible. People, people use language, uh, you see, as, as a matter of life, you know, and language, you know, I think one of the problems is that um, we tend to consider languages as objects, almost like as concrete objects. So this is mine, this is yours. Um, so if I'm if I am French and I'm not using French, you know, uh, it's it, because I'm using the word French because this particular legislation exists in France, but in other places in the world as well. So you know, if I'm French, I have to 
own this particular object called the French language, and I'm not really supposed to be using this other object, which is called the English language, because it belongs to other people and does not belong to me, it's not part of my identity, and so on. So we tend to see languages in that way. And I think that's part of the problem. Whereas if we consider language in a much more fluid manner, and it's something that is integral to our life, our social practices, are everything. And also, if we consider languages not necessarily as uh, separated from one another, you know, um, th that, that would be one step forward. And, and the, the, also something that sometimes it, 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 you know, it's a bit difficult to fully comprehend is how much languages continue to change all the time. So it's not, they're not some kind of fixed object that you would find in the museum. Um, it, it's something very much alive, to use that metaphor. And so um, English totally coexists with other languages, not only in France, but in many other parts of the world, and, and quite happily so as well. You know, pe people use English and people use other languages and mix the two and mix three languages together. And because that's physiologically what happens. You know, when you have a world that is mostly multilingual, these languages in multilingual places don't stay separated. They mix and they merge and they, they, they just blend. And that's what people do. So, you know, it, it, it's futile to say, to legislate against language X or language Y, because it's, it's impossible. You, you know, you get... It's almost like, I don't know, just to use a silly metaphor, you know, if, if you have ingredients to a recipe, if you're making a cake and you mix them together, you can't separate them again. You know, so when you have a situation where a society has two languages or more than two languages, they're there, that you can't take them apart. You can't, you know, you, you, you just, just part of the blend. Um, and so and I think this misconception is due to our to how much we have let our minds be persuaded that monolingualism is the norm you know the, you know so the german people speak german and the italian people speak italian and the spanish people speak spanish and so on and so forth and it's just a european concept that's fairly recent you know this idea that one nation speaks one language in reality in most parts of the world people speak different languages uh, together simultaneously. And multilingualism is the norm. Monolingualism is the exception. This is what we need to realize. When looking at Europe and and um, the kind of, uh, you know, at least for Europeans, the open border policies around there, what has happened to, to language use? I mean, obviously, there are people that speak multiple European languages because yeah. they're living in one place and maybe yeah. studying in another or working in a third. But how has this sort of mix of people moving across borders, I mean, there still seems to be a lot of uh, pride attached to the national language in these countries. Sure. What have you seen as a linguist in terms of mm. how these language, these ideas about language are shifting in a place like Europe where people are yeah. traveling and moving and living back and forth across borders and languages? Yeah. So, you know, in a place like Europe, what you get is that more and more increasingly people mobility is, is you know, it, it gets easier and easier. 
and increasingly you get people using English as a lingua franca. So, you know, you have Europeans traveling around, moving around, working in different countries for a few years, moving somewhere else, etc. And so you have English as a lingua franca, and that is, and it's a fairly denationalized language. So when Europeans use English, they're not using the language of the British. They're using their own language, and they're using it for, for their own purposes. And, and obviously, you know, if, if somebody... Um, say somebody from uh, Italy goes to work in Germany, or they go, or, or they move to Portugal, or whatever. They, you know, obviously they will they will start speaking the language of the country as well. Um, and but there's this huge um, role played by English as an international lingua franca. It just makes makes everything easier from that point of view. Um, and you get that. And you also have national languages that are becoming lingua franca in a way. So if you if you go to big cities in Europe, if you go to Milan, if you go to Berlin, and if you go to places like that, what you get is German being used as a lingua franca or Italian being used as a lingua franca by the various communities that live there. And again, you've got this wonderful mix between you know the languages that people carry with them the local language and English altogether. Um, and uh, people don't, on the whole, people are not too worried about that. Governments now in the last few years, at least some governments with this rise in nationalism that we are witnessing are beginning to, to, to express concern. Oh, you know, we should, we should preserve national languages, etc., because they're part of the national identity, etc. But, you know, people on the ground are quite happy to be multilingual. You're listening to Ideas. We're a podcast and a broadcast heard on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. You can find us on the CBC Listen app and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. The past is shrouded in mystery. To understand it, you have to get up close. Something happened to our collective psyche after the atom bomb. On NPR's Throughline, we reopen stories from the past to find clues to the present. Find Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Qui putaste Beacre, Locunturne, etiam nunc sacerdotes, Vaticani. Latin, like English, was once a global language stretching from Europe to the Middle East. Latin also pushed out local languages, but like English, was itself changed over time. This constant grappling between a global language and a local one is a given. And sometimes, despite efforts to preserve and support, a local language will lose the fight. Related to this idea of, of a language becoming widespread, there's also the opposite thing that happens where languages die out. Do you think we should be concerned about dying languages or languages dying out? 
this, uh, yeah, I mean, this, this, this is it's obviously a very good question. And um, it's a question, you know, the answer to this question, I could very easily answer the way that uh, would be considered nice and say, yes, we should be concerned and, uh, and uh, efforts to preserve these languages are uh, 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 great and brilliant and everything. So I, 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 you know, I agree with that. We're calling this episode English, friend or frenemy. The problem is that very often these efforts um, are not entirely successful. I mean, sometimes they are, sometimes a bit less. Um, and for me, the the key point is whether or not a language has an actual function in a society. Uh, it has a you know a reason to exist because sometimes what you get is is these efforts that try and keep a language alive almost in a some sort of um, artificial way um, for reasons that are more about identity and you know we need this language because it's part of who we are and so on but then do people actually speak it or do people really need to speak it um it, it, it you know it's a complex question i i you know i don't want to be dismissive of, about those efforts at all i mean it, it, it so it's difficult to really come across in a way that uh <laughs> that uh, doesn't suggest that i'm being dismissive about these efforts but um and they're also very different in different parts of the world. I mean, if you look at if you look at um, Welsh and Wales, I think that has been quite successful. Um, and you know, and I think people are speaking Welsh and 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 you know, meaningfully. So it's not some kind of symbolic. This this okay. Here's the difference that I want to really try and emphasize: the difference between a symbolic revival of a language um, and and a meaningful. Uh, sort of boosting of the role and the forms of a language somewhere, you know. If it's meaningful and if it is felt meaningful by the people, by all means, th these are great. I mean, I, I think this is fantastic that these things happen. If it's purely symbolic, if it's just, you know, let's have this language because, you know, because it's important, full stop, then, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit more sceptical. I guess it goes back to the analogy of like artifacts or an artifact yes. in a museum that, exactly. you know, I mean, it's certainly a conversation, uh, you know, in Canada, for example, with the preservation um, and the teaching of indigenous languages or mm. uh, in places like, uh, you know, northern Pakistan, where you have multiple languages that are spoken by, you know, a very small number of people. And so yeah. you have like these efforts to to record music in those languages and say folk songs and it it's yeah. i mean it's beautiful to listen to um but the approach i i mean i guess part of the motivation is thinking about did this language die out naturally or was this language pushed out by some form of imperialism whether it's local yeah. uh, it's a it's a dominant local language does that make a difference do you think if it's something that was the consequence of of a political power problem mm. or if it was something that just well you know people started moving away and and forgetting yeah. the language and and that's which is i guess also political but does does that which make a difference so, well it, it, exactly i think i think i think that's true and it 
it's not not political. You know, it's almost like everything is a matter of power and politics. Mm -hmm. But uh, so sometimes it's very obviously so. You know, sometimes it's very obviously a a, a matter of one language pushing out another one. Um, and like you know, once again, English is is the best example of that. You know, if you look at the entire African continent, you can see that happening, and it's been happening a lot. You know, languages really uh, being marginalized and 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 dying out because of people choosing to to use English instead. It's a, it's a really interesting debate. Um, the, the, quite famously, in I think in the nineties, there was um, there was a scholar. Who uh, Robert Philipson, who um, wrote a book on linguistic imperialism, really, really interesting, uh, really interesting book, and a, a lot of the content of, of that book was about how English has been, um, yeah, marginalizing or, or even destroying other languages. And but there's an interesting response. One of the many responses to the book. Uh, was from a Nigerian author who said that um, Nigerians are or have the intellectual capacity to make their own choices about which languages to use. And they don't need somebody to tell them, oh, you know, you poor people, you should be using Yoruba because English is bad for you and things like that. So it's very complex. And and, and it, can be, it can be patronizing to say... Um, you 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 should speak your language because because my language English uh, is imperialistic. Some Persian English words are actually like Yoruba words. One of the tribes in Nigeria, one of the languages of one of the tribes in Nigeria, they will say Oya, Oya is like come on. So it can be Oya, let's go. Come on, let's go. Waiting, what? Waiting be this. What is this? So waiting is what? Waiting be this. What is this? Wahala. Problem, trouble. Oh, don't no give me wahala. Don't give me stress. Wahala is trouble, stress. Before, before, long, long time ago. Before, before, like long, long time ago. I did come, I'm coming. I did go, I'm going. No, tell me, don't tell me. I no believe, I don't believe. Free me, let me be. Leave me alone. And I want to go back to this idea of multilingualism and the merging of languages, which we are now in, in sociolinguistics, this, this new term called translanguaging, which basically means the, 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 the simultane, simultaneous use of different languages together, which happens a lot anyway. And, and to me, that is a very powerful frame. It's a very powerful way to conceptualize the fact that we're not dealing with one language or another. But we we are dealing with okay allowing English to enter the scene, so to speak. But that doesn't necessarily mean renouncing or or, or erasing other languages necessarily. So you know the two can coexist, and and they do. Um, and smaller languages do tend to die out. It's not necessarily a a, a marker of contempt the contemporary world. Either it's something that's always happened, and and has happened as a result of 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 power. That that's um, that's a trait of humankind and and its relationship to language.
Well, and 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 I want to get into the. I want to <clears> talk ab- <throat> about the um, the language mixing in in just a second. Um, one of the things that, of course, comes along with this idea of of power and and a and a particular form of a language having dominance or or legislation around how language yeah. can be used is this idea of of purity uh language purity and when mm. when you and I were talking in the pre-interview I was telling you about my grandmother who spoke a rural form of the of the language that 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 was my home language and I um Accidentally, I'm going to say it was accidentally. Use the term "pure" to refer yeah. to, to to the form that she spoke. That it was, in a sense of that it that I realized, or I, I thought I realized that it was perhaps mm. an older form or a more which felt like a more authentic form. And you were not happy about my use of the term yeah. "pure." You kind of told yeah. me off about that. T- talk to me a little bit about why why that doesn't work as a term when when talking about language. Okay. Now the reason why that doesn't work. And the reason why I wasn't happy when you used it <laughs> is that which version of the language are we talking about? Because let's take the language, the, the exact language that you were referring to, right? So the rural version of a language in Pakistan. Now, you can take a, a metaphorical photograph of a language at one particular point in time or even a point in geography, so time and space, and, and say, okay, in this village, this is how they speak. Okay, fine. Now, 200 years ago, in the same village, they would speak in something different, right? And not even 200 years ago. You don't have to go far back in history that much. Um, In future, they'll speak it differently. So which one is the pure language? You know, this, this, this is another myth. The myth that somehow languages have an origin, you know, languages begin somewhere, and that point in time where the language begins is the purest form, and then it kind of, you know, it gets corrupted. Sometimes, you know, we tend to think of languages in that way. And it's simply not true. Languages are not born. They don't have a point of departure. And so the language that you can document in a village or anywhere in the world is the language that they speak at that particular time. Uh, You know, and even from generation to generation, even in a tiny village, you might find differences, and you will find differences. Um, and so, twenty-five years time, you document the language that the children of the current adults speak, and it will be different. Maybe not very different, depending on the society and how you know how fast you know things move forward, etc. But it will be different. So th- there isn't a version of a language that we can consider pure. Um, because which, which one is it? And, and, and languages, so that's one big reason. The other reason is that languages um, influence each other. Um, and so, so the idea of purity, it simply doesn't, doesn't make sense. You know, if you look any, I mean, English, English is probably the perfect example of a language that is everything but pure. You know, it has influences, vocabulary, grammar, everything from all over the place. And and it's certainly not pure. Even if you go to the, if you want to consider the mythical Queen's English or King's English, maybe we should say now, mm. it's um, that's not pure at all. I mean, you know, there's French in it. There's there's there's, there's everything. There's Greek. There's Italian. There's, there's Germanic, obviously. The, the Germanic root. There's, there's Viking. There's all sorts of influences in the English language, 
and there is no version of it that we can consider pure. You've written about linguistic border crossings. What does that mean? It, yes, it means, uh, yeah, it's, it's going back to this idea that languages don't have borders um, in the same way that countries have. So a country may have a border. Um, and very, very often, let's not forget, a lot of borders in the world have been created by European empires. Uh, for, for reasons completely other than, you know, um, identities or, or anything like that. But anyway, so, so languages, languages in most cases exist and are used across borders. I mean, look, you know, go, go to West Africa, for example. And if you, what's interesting to do, if you compare the political map of West Africa like meaning the countries in West Africa, Nigeria, Ghana, and so on. And then you compare that with the linguistic map of West Africa. What you see is that there is absolutely no correspondence whatsoever between the, the colors that you might want to use to, to, to identify each country and the colors the, and the areas that you might want to use to identify the languages. They're completely non, there's no co coincidence at all. And, and all those languages, uh, exist and are used totally across borders. But West Africa is, it, it, you know, is an illustrative example, but it's not an exception. It, it, you know, it's the same in, in, in lots of parts of the world as well, in Asia, South Asia. Um, so languages are across borders. So you live in the UK, um, which is also, uh, you know, a, a fairly multicultural society. Mm. What does this linguistic border crossing look like where you are? Well, in in the UK, um, as you say, the society is very multicultural, is very multilingual, obviously not uniformly so. Um, if you go to a place like London, the big cities, Birmingham, Manchester, Liverpool, and so on, yeah, you have incredible degrees of multilingualism and multiculturalism. And I mean, London, I mean, in the London is, is, is a fantastic... Um, in the most positive way, sense of the word mess of cultures and languages. And, and you get this, what happens in a place like London, actually, speaking of, you know, border crossing in the UK, is that, you know, just to use another culinary metaphor, when you have lots of, um, imagine a blender, right? So you put, you put different ingredients in a blender, right? And then you, turn it on and it makes the noise and it blends everything. What happens in London linguistically is a bit like that. So you have, you have people um, from the Caribbean, people from Asia, people from Africa, for example, the big, large communities. And the way that they speak English, they, so historically, they, they've arrived in London in the 50s and the 60s and so on, right? And what you get is this kind of blender effect where all those versions of English, sometimes even, you know, aspects of different languages come in and they kind of blend it together and they form something which is a lot more uniform than their original distinctiveness, if, if, that, if that makes any sense. So what you have is this kind of London multicultural English 
which takes elements of all these different types of English that have come from former um, colonies and have created this 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 wonderful blended mix. So 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 yes, you, 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 that's what you get in a place like London, and I suppose you get something similar, um, you know, in large metropolitan areas around the world. But London in particular, I think is really interesting because you have the center of empire, right? The center of the former empire, which, you know, where English has gone out from there and has come back to it in this different, many different forms and has re-emerged into something quite different from from you know, from the way that we think of in standard English or or, or whatever else, it, 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 it's something um, different and and diverse, but at the same time, not so diverse. If that makes any sense, if you you know, if you again, if you think of the blender effect, you know, you you know when you start blending, you and you haven't quite finished, you still see the bits, but it, be, it begins to see to to to, to become one thing. You know, so that's what's happening with this kind of all these Englishes that have come back to London, so to speak, and have reformed this new thing that is London multicultural English. So this idea of translanguaging, um, especially if these are languages that you that you live in on a regular basis, yeah, um, it's it's it deeply clashes with this um, idea that you've alluded to before about. Uh, monolingualism being the, the sort of the natural state or the or yeah. the normal state or the neutral state. Yeah. Um, and of course, monolingualism is also attached, you know, culturally and politically in particular ways, you know, like it, it uh, there, are there are political actors, but but also just ordinary citizens who will use that as a sign of like authentically being from somewhere yes. or a, a pride of place. How do you yeah. think about these two, you know, and, and and just in terms of the UK, this is, you know, or Canada or really anywhere else, these mm -hmm. two phenomena coexist. As a linguist, how are you thinking about the relationship between these ideas of of, of sort of monolingualism as some sort of natural state, but then mm -hmm. this, this very real reality of translanguaging? Yeah. yeah. I think the whole monolingualism um, as an ideology is something that stemmed directly from the nation-state ideology in Europe, um, and the, the 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 because even Europe before before the nation-state became a thing, Europe was 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 um, you know a massive language mix, and in many ways it still is. Um, so there was this huge emphasis on one people, one language, one territory. Um, and we're talking about, you know, sort of between the 18th and 19th century. That became very, very prevalent. As a, It's almost like it's a political agenda. And that then became the norm. Um, and, and multilingualism, the, 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 the exception in, in, in that particular frame. And we're still... With that, in in a way, you know, that the, the, the idea is still is still with us. I mean, the that period, that particular period, you know, sort of eighteenth century, nineteenth century, is also the period of um, imperial expansion, European imperial expansion. That's the period that gave us racism as well. Let's not forget. That's the period that gave us um, scientific racism. 
that postulated the existence of races, and it postulated that some races were superior and some races were inferior, that justified the whole imperial project. Now, the, the monolingualism ideology isn't a million miles away from that either, because it says there is this people, there is this, and when, you know, people meant race as well. You know, it was all one thing. This people with these racial connotations and with this particular territory that they inhabit, and this is their language, you know, very kind of primordial, very sort of, and, and, and that there's other people and they inhabit this land and they speak this language and they're called this way. And, you know, and this is them and this is us, right? And, and this, this is how the world was conceptualized. And we're still that idea is still is still with us you know it still lingers and in fact i mean you know if you if you look at what's happening in politics around the world in the last you know five five six years etc is being revived you know this already this populist idea of uh, of of nationalism that's kind of being resurrected um it, it's very much based on that and and and, and, and so that's you, you have even in italy now you know with with, with the current government now, i don't want to turn this into a political debate particularly but the legis the kind of legislation that you were alluding to earlier is now being discussed in italy as well we need to protect the italian language because too much english is bad for the italian language right because the Italians are Italian and they speak Italian and they inhabit a country called Italy, all one, 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 right? And, and so you have that, that contrasts like immensely with the reality on the ground. And maybe, maybe partly the, the, this kind of uh, nationalistic, um, uh, I don't know what the word is. Resurrection, maybe it's partly due to 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 some people fearing uh, too much uh, mixing. I don't know. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Shan's Patois Academy, Jamaican Patois Simplified. So Jamaican Patois is made up of many different languages. However, English has the most influence. Let's look at some words. So, first rule, English words ending with ER, you will change the ER ending to A. Water, so you get water. Sister, sister. Writer, writer. Paper, paper. Runner, runner. Teacher, teacher. Uh, so given that language is constantly changing, and that, of course, includes English as well, which is in a constant state of flux, where do you see English in the next 20, 30, 50 years? <laughs> it's a million dollar question. Um, you know, I mean, it, what's interesting with English uh, is that because of what's been happening with it, the global status and so on, you have two different and simultaneous forces acting upon it, right? On the one hand, you have this kind of, if you like, fragmentation of English into different varieties, right? And the distinctiveness and everything. Uh, and that that's just a direct consequence of the fact that it's so widespread, right? So you, you, that, that's normal, and that's what you'd expect, right? Yeah. The more English continues to spread around the world, the more it becomes 
different um, and diverse. That's what I mean. Um, so that's uh, but that's happening on one hand. On the other hand, you have more global forces. Let's call it globalization, just to use a shortcut. Right. So if English is used as, as an international language, and it is, and it and it's going to be used more as an international uh, lingua franca, then you also have something that keeps it some somehow together. Without legislation, without uh, you know dictionaries, but almost like a physiological uh, force that keeps it together by its use, right? So people using it internationally and as a lingua franca will keep it together. So you have at the same time this Venn diagram. If you go back to the Venn diagram idea that I was talking about before, so if each type of English is a circle, these circles are kind of you know pulling apart and and going back together as well. So there are two two forces that pull them apart. One force does that, and the other force kind of push them push them back together, pushes them back together because that's that's in the nature of a of a large international lingua franca as English. So, so that's what's happening. Um, it won't, um, you know, sort of kind of become the only language in the world or, or any, there's all sorts of scenarios that sometimes people read about, about English. I don't, definitely not in the next 20, 30 years. Definitely not. Um, will it stay the main international lingua franca in the next, say, 50 years or 100 years? That's a huge question mark. There is no reason to believe that things remain the way they are. There's no reason to believe that we are at the end of history. There are big other languages. And again, if we recognize how the trajectory of a language is tied very, very uh, strongly to matters of power and politics, depending on, on how power shifts around the world, will, that will determine the fate of languages as well. You've been listening to English, Friend or Frenemy, from Ideas producer Nahid Mustafa. Thank you to Mario Saraceni, reader in English language and linguistics at the University of Portsmouth, field recordings by Aparita Bandari, and Leonisa Reos. Our web producer is Lisa Ayuso. Technical production, Danielle Duval. The senior producer is Nikola Lukšić. The executive producer of Ideas is Greg Kelly, and I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.